The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 255 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is what family caregivers should know about online privacy risks for young people. Now, this episode is being recorded on October 22, 2013. This day, Canadian news highlights stories about the U.S. National Security Agency snooping on France. Earlier this month, news surfaced that Canada may have snooped on Brazil's Mines and Energy Ministry. This day, it seems that many governments are spying on each other using sophisticated information technology. And also this day, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association filed a lawsuit against Canada's communication security establishment, which the association believes is a federal government spy agency using invasive and secretive surveillance methods to watch ordinary Canadians. And back in June 2013, news broke of the work of the U.S. National Security Agency, through which the U.S. government has been systematically collecting phone records and online communications of millions of Americans. For several years, we've been learning that North American corporations compile personal information on us, their customers, and that North American healthcare systems compile personal information on us, their patients. We've also been learning about fraudsters, hackers, and identity thieves who access our information and then use it to rob, deceive, or abuse us, North Americans. And North Americans means all of us of all ages who rely on our governments, corporations, and healthcare systems to protect our personal information. And North Americans includes children and adolescents who are especially vulnerable to abuse because they're big users of smartphones and things like that. And they are in the age range in which 70% of all mental health or addiction problems start. All of which is why our topic today, what family caregivers should know about online privacy risks for young people, is so important to all of us. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Alessandro Acquisti. Alessandro is an associate professor at the Heinz College, Carnegie Mellon University, and the co-director of the Center for Behavioral and Decision Research. He focuses research on the economics of privacy. His research spearheaded application of behavioral economics to analysis of privacy and information security decision-making, 
and to analysis of privacy and disclosure behavior on the social online networks. Now, he's received the PET Award for Outstanding Research in Privacy Enhancing Technologies, the IBM Best Academic Privacy Faculty Award, multiple Best Paper Awards, and the Heinz College School of Information Technologies Information Teaching Excellence Award. He's testified by the, by, before the U.S. Senate and House committees, and his findings have featured in numerous national and international media. So welcome to the show, Alessandro. Hi, good evening. It's a pleasure talking to you, Gordon. Great. Now, first question for you. Please tell us more about your career and anything about your family life that you think is relevant. Alessandro? Yeah, but, well, I, I moved to the United States about um, in 1999 uh, to go to school to do my PhD in Berkeley. Um, in information systems, and after I graduated, I came here to Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, when I went to Berkeley, I was uh, trained up until then as a formal economist, a, a modeler. Um, but I went to not into a economics PhD, rather a information school, because I wanted to apply economics to information and information technology. I understand the trade-offs associated with uh, information and data. And uh, as it happens, I got interested in, the, um, in, in privacy while I was at uh, UC Berkeley. And um, so I started working on what is now known as the economics of privacy, which is about uh, the trade-offs associated with uh, protecting or revealing personal data. And uh, as I was working in that area, I also got interested in uh, how we as individuals make decisions about those trade-offs. How do we decide uh, what to reveal and what not on Facebook, online, offline, among friends, among strangers. And I found that the um, a formal modeling economic only oriented approach to analyzing these decisions was uh, unsatisfactory and that's why I started getting interested in uh, behavioral decision research and, um, and behavior economics and I moved on to what I now call the behavior economics of privacy. So most of my research now is really at the overlap of these two areas, economics of privacy and behavior economics of privacy, which is uh, how people really make decisions about protecting or revealing personal information. Alessandro, please could you identify for us the areas of your research that are most relevant to online privacy risks for young people, but also for everyone who goes online to do work or to do business or to do something like that. Alessandro? Sure. Um, the, 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 the first area I, I was mentioning, the, the economics of privacy. Um, what we try to do when we, when, we, when we do economics of privacy is to understand what trade-offs, what costs and benefits uh, are associated with uh, protecting or sharing data. Um, and these costs and benefits could be tangible or intangible. They are not just monetary. In fact, in the case of privacy, oftentimes uh, we are talking about intangible trade-offs. Um, so my work in this area has ranged from uh, the analysis of identity theft, um, um, for instance, um, what 
happens, what are the costs associated with identity theft, uh, and uh, whether uh, legislation in the United States imposing organizations to disclose data breaches to uh, their um, customers have uh, helped fighting identity theft. Um, uh, from this kind of study to on, on, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, more intangible uh, kind of trade-offs such as uh, what happens uh, in terms of uh, crime rates when uh, the identity and addresses of uh, GAN permit owners are publicly disclosed. So this gives you a, a range, uh, a sense perhaps of a range of uh, what kind of analysis one can do when you start using economic methodologies and approaches to, to um, study privacy, everything from identity theft to uh, personal security and crime. The second stream of research I was referring to, uh, behavior economics of privacy, is very much related to the question you were positing, uh, because often, uh, um, um, or at least sometimes, based on our uh, research by myself and others, uh, people reveal online information which eventually they may regret having revealed. Uh, they may overshare. They may provide information that was meant to friends, but they actually reveal it to strangers. And the consequences could be uh, sometimes embarrassment, uh, sometimes uh, discrimination, sometimes uh, losing a job. Uh, sometimes you need identity theft. So what we try to do in the second stream of research, the behavior economics of privacy, is to understand uh, what is the decision-making which drives our need to reveal or, or disclose, or sometimes our need to protect and uh, not disclose press information. And um, we have done Plenty, plenty of experiments in, the, in this area, studying the paradoxical effect of giving more control to data, uh, over data to users, what kind of impact that has on decision making. Uh, we have done studies uh, related to whether providing more transparency about how your data is used by organizations helps people or does not help them and so forth. And if you like, later on, we can definitely uh, go deeper into any of the studies, as you may, as you may like. The f there is a third stream of research I work on, which uh, seems to be extremely relevant to uh, your question. And this uh, third and last stream of my work relates to online social networks, right. especially Facebook. Um, and in, in, in this case, what we do is often we try to um, Mine, which means uh, we, 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 we download data, publicly available data from uh, online social networks, and then we do analysis on this data. And we try to address questions such as the simplest possible question would be, who is revealing what and why? But then we also do studies such as uh, what more you can uh, understand, know, or infer about a person starting from what they publicly reveal, reveal about themselves. Uh, for instance, about uh, four years ago, in 2009, uh, we published in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science a study showing how we could uh, 
predict uh, um, probabilistically, not deterministically, uh, social security numbers of people starting from public data, including public data that people edit via on their um, Facebook profiles. And as you know, social security numbers in, in the United States are considered extremely sensitive, sensitive information. But what we were showing was that all this wealth, this availability of public data, makes it possible to um, infer sensitive information starting from non-sensitive information. Another example of a, of a similar study, this is more recent, we did it last year, was to show that we can use uh, data from, uh, again, social networking sites and specifically uh, photos of people, so facial images, and we can combine that with uh, facial recognition uh, uh, software. Uh, and with this, we can re-identify people online and offline. By re-identify, I mean uh, we can give a name to a face which is up until then anonymous, which was up until then anonymous. And this face could be online. Uh, were on uh, websites where people put photos of themselves, but they don't want to put their names because they want to protect their privacy, or offline in the street. And we also showed that we could combine this type of research on facial recognition to the type of research I mentioned to you a few seconds ago, the one about social security numbers, and we could end up, if we combine these two uh, tools in a way, we could end up uh, uh, predicting uh, social security numbers starting from a face. And yep. this is indeed the study we did, and uh, we proved that this is possible. It's a proof of concept. Yeah. Alessandro, I'm going to stop you there. It's a very poignant moment to stop on because what you're saying is that you can find out who people are even when they think you can't. Now, we're stopping because it's time to take the break, which we'll do now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Alessandro Acquisti. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. 
That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alessandro Acquisti. Our topic is what family caregivers should know about online privacy risks for young people. Um, Alessandro, you've been talking about decision-making relation in relation to precautions and to risks. So I want to talk more, please, with you about precautions against the risks and whatever you know about young people's reaction to recommendations that mm-hmm. they should, you know, follow to protect themselves. Now, first of all, let me ask you a rather personal question. Which of the precautions that you take, uh, what are they, and would they be helpful to young people? Alessandro? Sure, and um, definitely. I'm happy to, to tell you what I do, and um, however, I will, uh, um, I will first... Uh, Tell you um, the following. Um, there is a interesting um, phenomenon in um, in decision research called uh, rational ignorance. Uh, there are certain situations where people rationally decide to remain ignorant about a certain topic. Uh, why? Because they expect that the cost associated with getting full knowledge of a certain topic will uh, not uh, be offset by the benefits of the gained information. Uh, why am I telling you this, this? Because in the case of privacy, sometimes it so happens that uh, privacy experts become so jaded about the, difficult, the difficulty of uh, fully protecting your privacy in a world of uh, social media, NSA, and continuous uh, surveillance of almost every aspect of our life, and as a result, they cannot give up. They don't even try to protect themselves because they expect that it's, uh, it's, it's impossible to fully protect yourself. So, indeed, it is impossible to fully protect yourself in that uh, so many aspects of our lives nowadays are done in manners which leave electronic traces. Um, these electronic traces didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I would listen on my um, tape uh, to music. Now maybe I listen to Spotify through Facebook in a live trail. I would use uh, cash. Now I use a credit card. Uh, I would date by calling a person. Now I date uh, maybe through Match.com or emailing a person. Really, it's, it, it's difficult not to leave traces, although there, that does not mean that there is nothing we can do. There are certain practical steps we can take. Uh, they go from the obvious ones, such as um, think about before revealing something sensitive online, think about the, the, the probability that this information will not just uh, go to your friends, may fall in the hands of strangers. And maybe nothing bad will happen from that. Perhaps instead something bad, because one of the strangers may have ill, uh, may, may ill intention and may use this information against you. So in practical terms, what I do is uh, try to use common sense. I also tell my students, 
don't review online, something that you may not want to see on the front page of the New York Times 10 years from now when you are a famous, successful individual. I also try to use uh, some basic uh, PET, privacy enhancing technologies, which are technologies which allow you to do many transactions you everyone does online, from email to browsing, uh, in some cases to even payments, but in a more privacy-preserving manner. However, like I told you, I don't use uh, these tools all the time uh, because I realize that there is a cost associated with this usage, and the benefit is only in a way partial, in that a, an attacker, and I'm using here a technical term uh, common in the security community, so someone who has an interest in getting to your data, if they have enough time and resources and skills, sadly, will get to your data. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you something else. You use the word jaded. People get jaded with all the things that are going on. I'm wondering if that translates into a kind of cynicism or a kind of disinterest on the part of young people who are, as we all know, big users of information technology. Do you see any signs from what you know of young people of that sense of not really being very interested in protecting themselves? Alessandro? Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. It's, um, it's also an extremely uh, difficult, and I say this actually as a compliment, an extremely difficult question to handle. Um, I, 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 because the, the, there is a little bit of research on this, but we definitely there are more open issues than resolved issues in, in this field of research. Um, let me tell you just a few um, um, potential, all related points without trying, I will not attempt to, to make a, a very strong linkage between each of these points. The first point is... Uh, um, we, we, we don't know when it comes to privacy whether we are like, um, you, you know the story apocryphal of the frog thrown in the water and allegedly if the water is cold but the temperature raises very, very slow, the frog remains in the water and dies. Whereas if the water is already boiling, the frog tries to jump out. We don't know whether when it comes to privacy we are like the frog in the cold water and the temperature is slowly raising, meaning there are more and more invasions and we keep getting adjusted to more and more invasions. If 15 years ago someone told you that most Internet users nowadays, in fact, most people would use something called the Internet and would uh, publicly reveal revealing so much about themselves online, most of us would have said, no, nah, that's not going to happen. And in fact, this is the reality we live in, and most of us accept it and like it. So in that regard, we may indeed be like the frog, which stays in the, in the water as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The interesting question, however, is uh, if we are like that, then uh, is there a point where eventually, a tipping point where eventually we say enough is enough, such as is there a reaction or there will be a reaction to the um, um, revelations this summer about uh, uh, government surveillance in, uh, in the United States, or whether indeed uh, we will keep uh, getting adjusted to more and more invasions 
to more and more disclosures. And uh, 10, uh, 15, 20 years from now, we will live in a world where privacy has become a bad world, a, a negative world. Um, I see, I'm not saying that this is going to happen. I put it out as a possible scenario. But what I can tell you, I do observe a, in surveys we run and in discussions I had in, uh, um, with others, I start seeing an emergence of an interesting phenomenon. Uh, it used to be the case that when people are asked about privacy, there will be uh, um, approximating a bit and generalizing a bit, uh, three types of individuals. Uh, the uh, Fundamentalists, those who say privacy is important, governments and, or, and organizations do not, do not have a right to know about me unless I, I share willingly this information. Uh, the pragmatists, those who believe that privacy is important, but they realize that to function in a modern society, they need to share data. And the unconcerned, those who say that, well, my life is an open book, I have nothing to fear. What I'm observing now is the emergence of a, of a fourth group, those who are militantly against privacy. They basically seem to say it's not just important, it's good to disclose. And if you are worried about being on Facebook, if you don't reveal information on Twitter, if you are against all these disclosing technologies, something's wrong with you. Something maybe is nefarious or dangerous about you. So this is something that we, we are observing, and it's interesting to me uh, to, 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 to see as, as a question whether this uh, militantly anti-privacy group will in fact grow over time in size and in influence. Very interesting. Now, let me take you in another direction. Privacy is a word that for 2,000 years has been discussed and not properly understood. And I'm talking there about the Hippocratic Oath that doctors are supposed to sign but don't. Um, what I'm now asking about is the actual harm that, that occurs. Do people, young people, do we all understand well enough the kind of harm that can come to us or to people we love because information is accessed and abused and used in ways that are harmful to people? Alessandra, do we know enough about, as a community, about the harms that occur? Alessandra? It, it is extremely, extremely difficult uh, uh, for individuals to predict the, the way the information they make available about themselves or which or that others gain about them how this information will be used in the future uh, so no I would say that it's uh, for most of us uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely hard to understand the future potential harm and, and I can explain w uh, more in detail why before I do so uh, I want to stress however that I by no means I'm suggesting that this Closing is bad, that, that um, sharing information with others is intrinsically bad. That's obviously not the case. Uh, human is a social animal, and we find evidence of the need to disclose and socialize uh, across times and across cultures. But we also see evidence across times and across cultures of a need for privacy. Uh, what, is, what is different to me about uh, these two different needs which have cohabitated human cultures in our brains uh, for thousands of years, what is different now is that the technologies which are available now really 
in a way push the accelerator on disclosure uh, versus privacy. They deny privacy and they they push or nudge us, nudge us towards more and more disclosures. Now, um, why this can be a problem? And I'm not saying that it's always a problem. Like I said, disclosing is important. It's an important part of, of human um, behavior. But the lack of privacy is, uh, can create a number of uh, uh, harms, a number of risks, which have been studied in the literature. They range from uh, tangible ones, such as identity theft, uh, to uh, discrimination, uh, discrimination in the workforce, discrimination in terms of what economists call price discrimination, so ending up paying a higher price or sometimes potentially a lower price for a certain good based on what the merchant has uh, inferred about you. And you go from these more tangible costs to the, um, sorry, more tangible ones to the more intangible ones, such as uh, the psychological harm associated with uh, being feeling under continuous surveillance, uh, the uh, inhibitory effect, in a way the chilling effect, that knowing that you are being monitored and identified can have on your behavior, on your freedom of behavior, and on your freedom of speech. And um, it is, uh, as I was mentioning, extremely difficult for us to uh, understand these harms because, and here I'm citing a line that uh, one of my advisors uh, at Berkeley once told me, uh, privacy is like a, a blank check. Uh, you, you, you put your signature on this check and you leave the amount blank and, and then you give it away. And then you don't know whether this uh, check is going to come back against you. Maybe it will not, it will get lost, it will get destroyed, or maybe one day someone will show up at your house with a check and your signature, and maybe there will be an amount of $1, and so it's no big deal, or there will be an amount of $1 million. The problem and the issue is that you only discover the value of privacy after you lost it. So that's why it's so difficult for us human beings, and there is plenty of behavior decision research exploring exactly this. It's so difficult for us to make good decisions about things which happen in the future and are so inherently uncertain. Right. Very good. Now, once again, unfortunately, it's time for us to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Dr. Alessandro Acquisti. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. 
Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alessandro Aguisti. Our topic is what family caregivers should know about online privacy risks for young people. Now, I'd like, um, Alessandro, to talk more. You've already said some things about the harm that comes about when privacy is broken, is abused, and how with a young generation that unlike me and perhaps unlike you, has grown up with technology, electronic technology, how they can be expected to take online privacy so seriously and why, therefore, it's important to discuss the harms and not just the notion of privacy with, with young people and, in fact, with everyone. So, in what ways is the online privacy of young people abused? You've already said something about that. Please say more about it. And what, what do we know about, so to speak, the harm that occurs to the individual? Alessandra? Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of a, of a potential harm, and then uh, I will uh, um, go back to, to your um, your question about specifically um, whether um, young people are, are in fact more at risk. Um, I'll start with the example, the, the example of harm I will start with is actually a very, very recent research we have done, um, which we are in fact right about to um, um, publicly uh, um, um, disclose. Um, about the, the effect of uh, social media on the hiring behavior of U.S. firms. Uh, long story short, we, we ran a large-scale uh, field experiment uh, aimed at investigating whether um, U.S. firms uh, search online for information uh, about uh, uh, job candidates, so... Uh, people who apply to jobs at these firms send and send their resume, and we wanted to see whether U.S. firms go on Google or on Bing or LinkedIn or Facebook searching for information about these uh, candidates, and B, and more importantly, whether they react to this information and specifically react to information which, uh, under uh, U.S. laws, is generally protected. As you know, there are certain types of information which cannot be uh, discussed in job interviews. Um, they because they may lead to discrimination based, for instance, on, uh, say, uh, religious orientation. 
So the, the legislator decided that it is in the interest of society to prohibit uh, an employer from asking the type of question because it's not in the interest of society to choose uh, um, uh, people for a job based on their religion. Uh, but interestingly, what happens now is that even if these laws still exist, we now have technologies that may make often this information publicly available because uh, many of us reveal information about ourselves publicly online, and we may reveal even, for instance, our, uh, our family status, our family plan, our sexual orientation, our political preferences, our uh, religious identity. And sometimes we, don't do, we do that without even feeling we are actually revealing this information, because uh, it's not just uh, uh, saying publicly, I am Christian, or I am Muslim, or I'm Jewish. Sometimes it's about uh, making a comment on someone else's wall on Facebook, or, or, or retweeting uh, some, uh, some tweet by someone else, or maybe posting a photo. These are examples of uh, um, disclosures which may indir indirectly reveal information about us, uh, including, like I said, protected information, meaning information which the legislator decided should, be, should not be used in, uh, in, um, in, um, for hiring purposes. Well, long story short, we did find in running this experiment that, yes, employers are searching online, and, yes, they are affected, uh, meaning uh, they, we detect the discrimination in uh, hiring based on information they find online, uh, specifically information which is uh, actually protected information. So this is an example of uh, uh, some type of harm. Uh, in, in this case, the harm for the people who have a certain trait, certain, uh, certain characteristics, which evidently the, uh, certain employers disfavor or not favor relative to other traits. And it's an example of the harm which can follow from uh, this information being publicly available online. Now, the issue of uh, whether, uh, whether and if so, why young people may be more at risk, well, um, although um, I, I mentioned to you, my research does not focus specifically on, uh, on, on, on young individuals. There are others who are experts in this field. What I can tell you is that um, um, young uh, Internet users may be more at risk for a number of reasons. One is uh, um, we are talking about, especially we talk about young teenagers. It's a generation that is, was born into these new technologies. They, they were born into mobile phones. They, it's part of their, not just daily life, of, of their hourly behavior. Uh, continuous usage of social media, continuous usage of mobile phone, texting, and so forth. So for them, it's very natural to use these technologies, which in a way is good because it means that they are savvy, partly about that, but it's also bad because they are really creating these dossiers, these, trace, these electronic traces, which are being indeed uh, monitored and recorded by uh, internet organizations. The second problem is that studies done in, uh, in other fields, not specifically on internet, but about uh, risk perception and ability to, um, to handle potential future risk of current behavior have shown that younger individuals are less able than older individuals, uh, let's say more mature adults, uh, to predict 
uh, and perceive the risk associated with their current behavior. In a way, sometimes the younger individuals are more risk-taking because they don't fully appreciate the long-term consequences of their current behavior, uh, which indeed uh, explains why I told you, yes, young, younger people from a certain perspective are more a risk, uh, are more a privacy risk or a risk of harm due to privacy violations. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you uh, a, a question about a medical condition, and this is a very difficult mm-hmm. matter, but it's not the medical condition that I want you to discuss, but the privacy issues. Mm-hmm. The, there's a, a, a disease called Huntington's disease, which is transmitted genetically. It shortens life. It causes a great deal of suffering. Uh, it's a horrible disease. And it's the genes, it's the DNA that transmit it from parents to the offspring. What that means is that um, if we look at the genetic uh, makeup of a parent, we can mm-hmm. say that the children or the child is going to inherit the disease. Yeah. Now, that information in the hands of an insurance company, an employer, or all kinds of people relates to the future of that individual in a way that's rather frightening because what it means is that if I'm inheriting that gene, I am going to die soon and therefore I am not going to be a good insurance risk. Now, I know that's a complex matter, but this idea that the future is something that's being, may I use the term, sold out because the privacy isn't good enough, is an ethical issue. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a troublesome uh, um, issue for sure. Uh, the, 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 there are scholars working in this area trying to understand genetic privacy. Uh, for instance, Brad Malin at Vanderbilt it's, uh, and, and others. It's, it's, it's a very important area because, um, because uh, they, your genetic information is passed on to your offspring. That means that even if uh, the, uh, the, the parent makes a conscious and, and willing uh, um, decision to um, reveal information about uh, himself or herself, genetic information about himself or herself. Uh, in, in in fact, uh, he or she is also revealing information that will then apply to the offspring. In uh, and therefore, it's like in a way giving away, uh, uh, transacting away, trading away the privacy of your offspring too. Um, and indeed, there are there. Mm-hmm. There is so much progress. There, there has been so much progress in the in the last few years, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the ability of uh, inferring or detecting the probability of uh, of uh, developing certain diseases based based on genetic data. Now, uh, we still don't know how accurate these predictions will be, um, and and therefore we still don't know how this information will eventually. Uh, be used by others. Um, however, the, the, even the, 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 the mere possibility that a third-party entity could uh, um, make uh, accurate enough inferences about uh, your, your future 
health uh, state uh, are so um, worrisome that uh, we do need to have a debate. And, uh, and as I told you, I'm very glad that there are some researchers work, work, working exactly on this area. I'm just going to reinforce what you're saying from a piece of history that's recently been revealed in England. Uh, they were digging up a car park and they found the body of someone who they thought was King Richard III who died 500 years ago. Um, they did some genetic tests and yes, it was hmm. King Richard III. And then within days, if not hours, they were able to track that genetic information to someone who lives in Canada and now is proven to be a direct descendant of that <laughs> king. Now that is a nice story in one way, but it's also a story that says if you sign away your genetic information, uh, it can persist for 500 years. And that is, I think, a warning story and it reinforces exactly what you've just been saying. Now, once again, we've reached the time when we have to take the break, so that let's do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Alessandro Aquisti. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We're coming back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Hi, I'm Ed Krell, CEO of Destination Maternity. We proudly support the March of Dimes work to reduce the rate of premature birth. The numbers have gone down in the past five years, but still, nearly half a million babies are born too soon in the United States each year. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and community programs to help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alessandro Acquisti. Our topic is what family caregivers should know about online privacy risk for young people. Now, I, Alessandro, I would like you to tell us, talk to us about the things that you would like to do through your work and your research and things that you would like to see done to help families, family caregivers, young people, and in fact, all of us to understand the risks of harm caused by abuse of online privacy. So, through your own work, what would you like to do? Well, I, um, I, I, I choose research questions to analyze because uh, uh, I'm intellectually curious about them, but also because I feel they relate to uh, important policy issues. By the way, here at the CMU, at the Heinz College, we have a public policy school and an information school, and most of us have joint appointments. So, indeed, the part of my work as a, as a policy uh, focus. So I've been trying to write in a manner which can be accessible not just by other scholars, but also, for instance, policymakers, so that they are um, they can be made aware of where tracking technologies are going and what the implications are, as well as, of course, uh, the the general public as a whole. And uh, I keep uh, I want to keep doing that, and many other studies on uh, what I call the behavior economics of privacy. Indeed, uh, examine whether we can make uh, good decisions about our personal information. And if not, then uh, um, is that a problem or, or is not a problem? Um, in uh, when uh, when I think about the, the future of privacy and, and, and where we are going with all of these. I sometimes um, go back to a, a, a book I read when I was uh, uh, um, a young kid. And the book actually is not uh, 1984. It's not George Orwell. I don't think that the future of privacy or lack of privacy will bring us necessarily closer to the Big Brother, although, yes, we, we see that uh, um, under the revelations we had this uh, summer about government surveillance, uh, perhaps we may be closer to that world than we, we believed we were. But the book I actually was referring to, and which is to me a, an even more persuasive and poignant description of the kind of uh, society we, we are transforming into is a brave new world, uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, a world where uh, there is no um, um, big brother um, uh, keeping you poor uh, and almost in a state of uh, con- slavery and continuous control, but where in fact our material, commercial needs are being satisfied um, and continuously addressed. And yet, similar to 1984, this is a world with very little freedom. Uh, in a more subtle manner, in uh, Brave New World, we believe we are free, but in fact we are constantly being nudged, constantly influenced and manipulated through uh, technology, through the architecture of choice that the technocrats in the society have created for us. And sometimes I fear that we are getting closer and closer to the kind of world where we feel we are autonomous, we feel we are freedom, but in fact our behaviors are so constantly monitored and analyzed that they are also constantly influenced. And um, 
the alternative, the one future I would prefer to live in, is a future where we we still have the, the technologies for so-called big data, a term which I hate, but which encapsulates uh, the, 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 the opportunities which can, the good opportunities which can arise from the uh, gathering and analysis of, uh, uh, of uh, individual data across, uh, across the world. But we have that at the same time as we have also privacy. So we also have protection. And uh, although the two may seem uh, in contradiction, the two needs the two technologies, the technology for big data and technology for privacy, they are not. Because uh, going back to something I was mentioning earlier in our conversation, uh, going back to the topic of privacy and ANSI technologies, the best privacy and ANSI technologies, PET, are those which do not simply stop the flow of information. Rather, they allow for information to be uh, transferred, even analyzed, but they also protect certain type of information. So I do believe that through technology we can uh, have the cake and eat it too. Uh, the challenge as a society is uh, whether we will want to deploy, adopt, use those technologies, or whether in fact uh, we will end up living in a world which is uh, um, the world in a brand new world, is uh, Aldous Huxley world. Let me just ask you about politicians, the people who make decisions in government about things like that. Do you think that they are well enough informed, well enough aware of the kind of thing, risks of harm and the ways in which our nations may develop uh, in the way that you are? Um, when... As you know, when we are talking about uh, politicians, um, in, for instance, in, in D.C., we are not talking about just the, 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 the individual, the, the, the person uh, who is a member of Congress or is a senator, but we are also talking about the staff uh, working for them. And my experience with uh, staffers, many, many staffers in D.C. have been uh, extremely positive in that I've uh, encountered people who are extremely skilled, extremely knowledgeable, uh, and uh, and uh, motivated to to do the right thing, and um, so my interactions with the staffers, uh, which then uh, prepare reports and see in some cases even write the laws for the for the actual congressman, has been extremely positive and make gives me a little bit of hope. Uh, of course, then uh, the issue is still uh, uh, whether the our representatives in in the House or in Senate whether they uh, want to go for the route uh, of uh, uh, more balance between privacy and disclosure or for the route of uh, even more monitor, even more surveillance, even more tracking. Uh, and this depends both on the, on the political orientation and on the personal views of each individual politician. And, of course, uh, we cover all the spectrums. Right? There are some, uh, some members of uh, Congress who are very pro-privacy and some who are, uh, in a way, almost against privacy. So... It's uh, in a way we go back uh, to the democratic process of trying to elect people who have uh, values that we believe in. Right. Now, very quickly, what's your message for families concerned about their young family members who might be at risk of harm caused by the abuse of online privacy? What's your quick message, Alessandro? I will go back to 
the, the line I share often with my students, when you're about to share something online, even if you believe you're only sharing with your friends, keep in mind that they, it may happen that this information 10 years from now, when you're famous and successful, will be on the front page of the New York Times. So think twice. And I say this while fully aware that it's uh, what I just said, it's uh, easier said than done. Right. Very good. Now, first of all, I want to say thank you very much um, for this episode, um, Alessandro. This has been very informative, very insightful. And the way in which you've described the future, I think, there's cause for optimism, but it's plain that we also need to be aware, watching out for and taking account of and reacting to the risks. And that's all of us, as well as the people who govern us. So every success to you on behalf of everybody. That's what I wish you. And in future, I'd love to do another episode just to catch up with the research you're doing. I wanted to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Now, our next episode will be Huntington's Disease Society of America and Huntington Society of Canada speak about genetic testing. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.